welcome to Memoirs of Successful Women. I am so delighted to be joining with you again today and I'm going to be introducing Dr. Hania Bednarski to you. We are going to be talking all things breast and breast surgery and wellness. So a little bit about uh, Dr. Bednarski. She is an oncoplastic breast surgeon and breast cryoblation specialist whose goal at Serenity Surgery and Wellness, which is her practice, is to reduce the footprint of surgery. She performs many different procedures, including cryoblation, biopsies, tumors and lump resections, reconstructive surgery, breast reductions and minimally invasive procedures. And she actually is super passionate about educating patients of all ages who are scared or anxious about breast cancer in particular, or who simply want to improve their lifestyle. So they're all presented with all of their options, opportunity to feel whole again. So I'm really looking forward to chatting today. Welcome to my program, Hania. Thank you so much, Annie. Thanks so much for having me. You are so welcome. And I have not discussed breast or breast surgery, breast cancer with anyone on this program. And I know it's going to be so interesting to our listeners because let's face it, women um, are thinking breast. We have this sort of fear of breast cancer. We know the rates are high. We're encouraged to get mammograms. We might have had a relative with breast cancer. And then there's also people who've had breast implants, breast reductions. One of my family members has just had a reduction. And so this conversation is kind of like always lurking in our minds, but we often don't tap into it. So how about you just tell us straight away, what do you do in your words? And what are those fancy words that I just mentioned in your introduction? <laughs> sure, I would love to. So yeah, I'm an oncoplastic breast surgeon. And that means that I do everything from biopsy through reconstruction for patients. So I had training both in tumor resections. I, again, just do all of my own biopsies. And then I also know how to reconstruct the breast to make it still look like a breast. So whether that means doing a reduction, for instance, so removing a tumor and then reducing the breast size both sides so that the breasts match nicely, or whether it means doing a mastectomy, removing the breast entirely with or without the nipple, and lately, there has been uh, quite a wave of women that go for no reconstruction. It's called a flat closure. Um, but if a woman decides to have reconstruction, I also do put in implants um, and what are called tissue expanders, which are kind of inflatable balloons so that a woman can see what size her breasts will eventually be. And then she has a secondary surgery to exchange for final implants. Mm -hmm. Now, additionally... I also do cryoablation, which is the other big word that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, and cryoablation is freezing of breast tumors. So um, I really have made it my goal to minimize the footprint of surgery. And we have gotten better and better at doing that. So uh, one of the ways that we can do that is by doing freezing of tumors. So that means that we don't even have to remove any of the tissue. We mm -hmm. actually place a probe through the tumor, freeze it down to negative 180 degrees Celsius. So mm -hmm. super, super cold. Um, and that way the tumor cells get killed in multiple facets. So they get killed by the freezing temperature. They get killed because the cells 
um, draw in water and then there's a thawing phase where they burst. Um, the blood supply to the tumor gets cut off by the freezing action. And generally, interestingly, what we found out lately in animal models is that the body, the immune system, then uses these uh, degraded tumor cells almost like its own vaccine. So the cells uh, put the little pieces of uh, tumor on their receptors and say, this is the bad guy, this is who we need to watch out for. And then it seems that when we actually have uh, animals that have stage four cancer, so if they have cancer that's spread to other areas, if we do cryoablation on the primary tumor, in this case, the breast tumor, the other sites appear to shrink down. So the body's defense system gets so much better and our immune system goes on high alert and cleans up the other areas in the body. And so that's an incredibly exciting part of um, study that's being done currently. And again, small studies, animal models mainly, but something that's certainly very exciting because you're absolutely right. Our breast cancer rates are high. And part of that is because we've gotten much better at diagnosing, right? So in the United States, we're one in eight women um, are diagnosed with breast cancer, one in 800 men every year. In Australia, one in seven women or one in 600 men are diagnosed with breast cancer every year. And, you know, that's those are startling statistics. And it's wonderful that we've gotten really good at diagnosing tumors, but we need to get better and better at the treatment of tumors. Mm. So, yeah, so it's exciting. It's a lot. <laughs> a lot of information. It actually is super exciting, and I love talking to doctors because that's right. You're always you're practicing your craft, if you like, but you're always looking for better ways. What new ways are coming out? What's the future? What is research showing us that's coming through the pipeline? And uh, that is super exciting. And um, how brilliant is that that your body can then sort of give it give it a warning sign, if you like, of let let's just get very vigilant here about um, responding. I absolutely love that. Why do you think that's an interesting thing? Because I'm in Australia. Why are our breast cancer rates higher? Do they know why they vary globally? So uh, there's no question that they vary globally. Um, you know, certainly in um, third world countries, we have even higher rates. And unfortunately, there the issue is, you know, lower diagnostic value. We really aren't able to get diagnosis early enough. And so usually these tumors are found when they're much more advanced. It also has a lot to do with um, our diet. So we know that processed foods have uh, carry an increased risk of all cancers, not just breast cancer. Um, there were studies done in the 90s, uh, the Women's Health Initiative, which were carried through uh, about 20-year follow-up that showed that women that use high levels of uh, hormone um, hormone replacement therapy do also increase the risk of breast cancer. Now, interestingly, lately, we've gotten a lot better about really fine-tuning that information because sadly, you know, when women do have symptoms that need to have potentially a short course of hormones to help them through those symptoms, whether it's night sweats or insomnia or mood swings or, you know, libido issues or vaginal health issues, there's no question that we need to be able to help that. 
And we know that hormones help quite a bit. So we've gotten a lot better at realizing that vaginal estrogens, so applying a cream directly in the vaginal area, is actually quite helpful and not nearly as harmful as oral and uh, as oral hormone replacement therapy. So we've gotten better at a lot of things, but we still need to continue doing better, right? And I, I don't know specifically why there's such a difference between Australia and the US, um, but you know, certainly we just need to do better generally. So <laughs> it would actually be a very, very high rate of testing. I know our government really does um, you know, encourage women from 50 or 40, if you've got a, fam a strong family mm -hmm. history, to actually go out and get mammograms. So I think maybe per head of population, it could actually just be the testing rate. But with everything, it's definitely worth, worth researching and finding out why. Uh, I love the way you're talking about reducing the footprint. And for those who aren't totally understanding what that means, and you've then referenced the, the fact that you can actually freeze cells and tumours and so forth, I'm assuming that means that you're trying to do absolutely Absolutely everything you can, which is interesting as a surgeon, not to cut and to create right. other wounds, which is really encouraging for the lay person to hear. Because often you think if you go to a surgeon, are oh, they going to want to cut something out or uh, and and sort of go that route? Whereas it's actually not not what you're saying at all. You're actually trying to you know reduce that that um, requirement on someone's body because obviously the healing time or the potential complications I'm imagining would be higher you're absolutely right you're absolutely right so and and you're absolutely right also that you know I'm maybe a little bit different as a surgeon and that you know I always laugh that I'm not just a monkey with a knife you know I really I really take a look at my patients and I listen to my patients and I think that that's something that's super important and I do think that generally um, physicians, uh, surgeons that have subspecialized specifically in breast cancer care really are quite good at listening to their patients. So I mm -hmm. think that, you know, that's not necessarily something that's unique to me, um, but I definitely think it's something that's unique to the specialty. And, you know, unfortunately, there are in the United States, at least, and I'm not certain in Australia, but in the United States, I know that there is quite a large subset of general surgeons who don't have specialized training in breast surgery. But unfortunately, as they get older and closer to retirement age, they feel that maybe breast surgery is easy. Maybe mm -hmm. that's something that they can do because it's not as demanding, which is completely untrue. Um, and, and, you know, they don't follow the data. They don't really get read up on what the latest and greatest um, studies show. And it's problematic. It's truly problematic. So I think that, you know, it, it's, it's so important as a woman um, or as a man with breast cancer, quite honestly, if there's anything that has to do with the breast, I think it's super important to just see a true specialized breast surgeon not necessarily just a general surgeon who happens to do breast as a hobby or as a, you know, um, something to pass the time until they retire. Mm. Are you finding a dramatic increase in um, 
breast implants or breast reductions, women women wanting to enhance or make themselves, even breast reduction to make yourself sort of, you know, with those who've got very large breasts to reduce the weight on their back, you know, for health reasons as well as tumour reduction. Uh, are women becoming a lot more aware of their options or is this a space that you go, you know what, you, ladies need to understand that there's just so many more uh, conversations to be had around this topic? I think that you see some of both. Um, I do think that, uh, so to tell you the truth, a breast reduction is such a fantastic surgery. You know, a woman who has heaviness in her chest, who has slumped shoulders, who can't stand up straight, who, you know, has the, um, the imprints from the bra straps. And mm -hmm. often, you know, I'll see women with very large breasts who actually have discoloration under their breasts, or they have discoloration where the bra hits on their sides or on their back. They have scars from their bras. To do a breast reduction uh, for women is such a fantastic option. I mean, it really is. Um, and interestingly, although studies haven't been done on this, I feel, just my own professional opinion, that if you reduce the amount of breast tissue, you're going to reduce the breast cancer risk just by wow. virtue of the fact that you have less breast tissue, right? So, so I think that, you know, it kind of um, takes care of several different points at once. Implants are an interesting um, thing to discuss because I think implants were incredibly, and they still are quite popular, incredibly popular in the 90s and 2000s. But lately, there, there has been more and more awareness about breast implant illness. Um, and, you know, there are women that are having these weird symptoms that aren't really well-defined and there isn't a diagnosis yet, but there has been this phrase that's been bouncing around breast implant illness, which includes things like fatigue and joint aches and, you know, possibly eczema or other skin issues that are really just causing women a lot of problems. And what we're finding is that we see this regardless if the implants are textured, not textured, if they're silicone, if they're saline, you know, it really doesn't matter. And the majority of women do get better when the implants are removed. Mm. Not all, but the majority do. And so I think that with that awareness, we're actually seeing the amount of women that want implants as a, an augmentation truly decline. Now, interestingly, as an alternative, when we're talking about breast uh, reconstruction after mastectomy, we actually are seeing the amount of breast implants increase as opposed to using a muscle flap or a belly flap to reconstruct the breast. They're significantly easier surgeries to withstand. Um, it's less time in the hospital. It's less time. It's less downtime from work or from your, you know, from your household chores. And it really is a great option for women. And interestingly, we don't see breast implant illness with reconstructive implants. Mm. We see it more with augmentations. So women who simply want a little more va-va-voom, if you will, yeah. um, you know, we see it in them more than we see it in women who have had breast reconstruction for mastectomy purposes. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. 
fascinating absolutely fascinating what's your advice to uh, those of us who watch those tv shows and then people just go i want breast breast enhancement and so instead of paying the the fee that is required in in um you know in the us or australia they'll then fly to somewhere like bali um and get their breast surgery there now we all see the shows and and see sort of horror stories is that real real that that you know is a real risk for people what's your advice to people who are thinking about sort of taking that cheaper option yeah i think you get what you pay for you know and i i have seen those horror stories in my office and i've seen those Actually, unfortunately, I saw that horror story with a friend of mine. She decided to have breast augmentation in another country, and she had a lot of problems. And my patients, I have several patients that have had real issues. You know, I, I really think that your health is something that you shouldn't gamble with. And when you decide to, you know, put your finances ahead of your health, you truly are gambling. And no question that some of those results turn out perfectly fine and there yeah. are no issues. But unfortunately, we hear a lot of those horror stories because they do happen. So, mm. you know, I really advise against it if at all possible. Yeah. And I love just watching your face for those watching on YouTube. You know, when I mention it, you're like, oh, it's kind of like, don't do it, don't do it. I can see the temptation because it's really significant, you know, where, you know, costs of surgeries um, and doing the, the full treatment, which is, you know, in whatever sort of um, situation you're in. Uh, I know uh, my daughter, who won't mind me mentioning on the podcast because she tells everyone, she's one of those um, young ladies, only 23, who's just had a breast reduction actually mm -hmm. uh, about two months ago and uh, for those medical reasons that when you've got when you're 23 years old and you've got g breasts and that you've just got yeah. that all that weight and slump and posture and pain and and um and all of that you know it does actually seriously change your life but it is one of the things that pops into their mind going okay if it's going to cost you know ten thousand twenty thousand dollars maybe i could go somewhere else and and that's the thing and that's the conversation i had with her and her her beautiful surgeon as well going you know what is the qualifications of the person doing it you don't know what is the what is the quality of care like um and also how much is your body worth because you you know you're, you're spending the rest of your life with that with that right. beautiful body oh my goodness so this is very real and very current in our family conversation yeah. here it sounds like it you now know and then the, the other piece I'm sorry to interrupt but the other piece of it that I was just going to mention is what about follow-up you know the yeah. reality is that you know unfortunately sometimes infections happen so you know if a woman is diabetic or a smoker or you know simply bad luck it happens. And if you had your surgery in another country and now you go back home, who's going to mm. follow up on, for you? You know, if you have healing issues, if you have an infection, if, you know, something ends up not quite right, or if you need, you know, if one breast ends up bigger than the other or something like that, you know, you yeah. really want to have somebody that you can come back to. That is such an excellent point. Uh, now, having excellent quality of care actually does you know require time as you've just referenced there it takes time to actually see that prepare that person well you know um, give them their treatment follow up 
Um, you know, and the, and sometimes that's not really supported. It's not supported by, you know, the framework that um, doctors work in, the hospital system. Um, it's not even sort of understood or recognised by patients on why those follow-up appointments are necessary. Because instantly you're thinking, oh, I've had the main job done now. It's just extra money. Is it really required? How does that whole issue work for you as a doctor? You know, it must be so frustrating working in that framework and also having the effects of that from um, people in society. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, you're absolutely right. And it's one of the reasons that I am so happy to be in private practice because I really call my own time. And if I want to spend an hour with a patient, I can spend an hour with a patient. I don't have, you know, my hospital CEO breathing down my neck saying, you know, you have 15 minutes with this patient. So I think that from that standpoint, it's so important. And I, I, as you, when you did your introduction, you know, you said that I'm passionate about education and I really am. So a lot of that time that I spend with patients, I actually spend educating them. It's not so much that I'm, you know, looking at their breasts for an hour. It's that I'm, you know, I do a quick exam and, and then we start talking and we talk about things like, and we talk about everything. And so I think that that's, what the value is additionally for the patient is it's not just about the breasts, but it's about your vaginal health. It's about stress in life. It's about making sure that you can handle, you know, the 15 different directions that you're being pulled in when you're taking care of yourself. And, you know, we can, we have time in that case to really tackle those questions because it's so important for women, especially, you know, we really bear the brunt of our family matters. And we're the ones that are, you know, in charge of keeping the schedule and making sure that everybody gets everywhere on time and everybody has, you know, their lunches packed and their and their coffee made and their, you know, their clothes and their shoes on straight and they have the right shoes with the, you know, the right shoe is matching the left shoe. And, you know, and for the husbands and for the kids, you know, it's for everybody. And we're we always put ourselves last. And so I think that you know, when you're seeing a breast surgeon in that moment, in those minutes that you're with the breast surgeon, you can truly take time for yourself and really figure out what the best aspects of care are for you and how to best devote your time to yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really, it's, you're right. There is sometimes some difficulty in making sure that patients understand the importance of follow-up. But I think that once they understand that it's more than just, you know, checking the scars or checking the wounds or making sure that, you know, their mammogram looks okay. Oh, I can get a report from my radiologist. Well, yeah, but then who's going to educate you on making sure that you're preventing this Mm -hmm. from happening, you know, that you're doing the right things? Because I can tell you that at least on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, I have women who are in my office saying, how in the world did I get breast cancer? I have my mammogram every year. Mm. Mammograms don't prevent breast cancer. (laughs) They just find it, you know? And so, so I think that it's the education piece is really the biggest piece. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm quite happy to put my hand up there. I went to the GP for something the other day and she said, you know, you need to have a mammogram. And I'm like going, oh, yeah, I think I had one not that long ago. And she's like, going, no, it's actually 20 you know, months. It's not a year. You know how quickly a year goes yeah. by. And yeah. so if you don't have that direct relationship or the reminder system and that's it, I'd be thinking, well, I couldn't have breast cancer because I have had a mammogram recently. But that doesn't mean that something didn't start the week after I had that and it could have been brewing for 20 months. So now I'm thinking, okay, I've definitely, <laughs> you know, because it's so easy just to get, that's right, overly busy as a woman, uh, you know, that's right. And as you've reiterated, you know, seriously, most of us have two jobs, you know, just running the whole household and all of those things and, and do have a tendency to put ourselves last and, and you know, our self-care and, and wellness. And I love the way you've got that name in your practice that you're all about, you know, um, wellness the full package of wellness rather than yes what what does it technically say in this scan or or um report and therefore i i do an operation and fix it you know it's not just a one-stop fix it's the whole the whole person um which is absolutely fantastic so awareness isn't really enough though it's sort of we are aware but but we need to act you know what yeah. what what changes do you recommend? You know, what's the main point of advice that you can give to people about protecting themselves from, you know, well, you can't stop breast cancer happening, as you said, but actually just being really vigilant about making sure you understand the risks and what you should do about that. Yeah. So, you know, I always recommend a few things. So first thing I, I recommend is to make sure that your diet is as clean as possible. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to be pristine. It doesn't mean that you have to be an angel and that you have to do it perfectly every single time. But even if you follow the 80-20 rule, 80% 80 of the time, you know, your diet is spot on. So you, you don't, you stay away from processed foods. So sausages, bacon, you know, especially processed meats. So it's not just processed foods, but especially processed meats. So, you know, all the, the bacon, the um, bologna, the um, sausages and things like that. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, making sure that your diet mainly consists of plants, so vegetables and fruits, again, does not mean that you have to be a vegan, does not mean that you have to go crazy. But the reality is that study after study after study has shown that women who eat more fruits and vegetables do have a lower risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. We know that decreasing dairy seems to have some effect on breast cancer risk as well. That's not studies as well in women, but I can tell you in men, there have been studies that show that eating, uh, that stopping eating cheese so the idea being that cheese is, you know, a highly hormonal product of milk, um, men that stop eating cheese decrease the risk of prostate cancer. Mm. And in a lot of ways, prostate cancer and breast cancer are sibling cancers. They actually act very similarly and they look very similar under a microscope. And so although the studies haven't been done as much, I always extrapolate with the caveat, you know, I always explain to the patient that, you know, this hasn't been as well studied, but I always extrapolate that if this is what it does to male breast cancer or to male prostate cancer, I think that it can also be said that very likely dairy effects are increased risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So again, decreasing processed foods as much as possible, um, decreasing dairy, 
Sugar is another really big one. And I mean added sugars. So I mean sugar in your coffee. I mean baked goods. I mean, um, you know, pastries and things like that. I don't mean fruits. You know, a lot of people here, you know, there's there are all these fruit gates going on, you know, that everybody everybody's saying fruit is the devil. And I can tell you that it truly isn't. Your body knows how to handle the sugar level in an apple. Your body knows how to handle the sugar in a fig. Your body doesn't so much know how to handle the sugar in a scone or mm. in a, you know, in a cheese puff or, you know, something like that. And the reality is that the less sugar that we take, the less likelihood of cancer we have because cancer loves sugar. It just does. In fact, one of the tests that we do, a PET scan, the way that we determine the areas of cancer in the body is we inject a dye that has a sugar particle associated with it. And we know that the areas in the body that have um, higher activity, that those are the areas of cancer because cancer loves sugar. So, you know, so that I think those are the main things. Um, the other things that I'll say is, you know, staying active as much as possible. And we know, especially for women, not only is it about staying active for breast cancer risk, but staying active for your bone health. You know, so we know that osteoporosis risk goes up as our hormonal levels drop off. Mm -hmm. And so as we go through menopause, our bones truly are at an increased risk of fracture. And to help that, we really need to do weighted exercise, whether that's body weight, so push-ups, pull-ups, squats, you know, or if we start to do weightlifting. Personally, I love weightlifting. I'm a big, big fan. So, you know, I will always say lift as much as you can, as often as you can. Um, but, you know, staying active and, you know, doing some sort of weighted exercises, again, whether body weight or uh, weightlifting, and then otherwise doing something that makes you happy, whether that's dancing in your living room or going for a run or, you know, uh, cleaning house. Some people love to do that. <laughs> so, you know, any of those things just to keep yourself active. Gardening is a wonderful activity, you know, so anything to keep yourself active also, we know that those things decrease the risk of breast cancer. Mm. Oh, what fantastic health tips for not only breast cancer reduction, but also just all cancers, I'm assuming, you know, just going back yeah. to basics. So that's right. If I remember when I was growing up and it was like, you know, if it's in a packet, you know, it's probably not the best choice for you. And it's, that's right. Go d dive into the fruit bowl or the vegetables and, and have, you know, a little bit of unprocessed meat, you know, and, and just be active. It doesn't sound like rocket science, but society has made the convenience of, you know, just accessing a ready-made processed food, you know, at the ready. And I, I'm, I'm sure it's been such a detriment, um, not only to the breast cancer rates, but all cancer rates. Uh, for sure. Now, for those listening in and also have a relative with, um, you know, cancer, we, you referenced a little bit about, you know, hormones and HRT. Uh, people like me who've had a grandmother who had breast cancer, you know, what should, what what additional precautions should they have? What age do you recommend that they start getting mammograms and, and, and taking uh, their breast care more seriously than the average person? Yeah, so it depends a lot on the age that they were when 
the relative was diagnosed. So if the relative was diagnosed postmenopausal, mm-hmm. um, then and, and at, at a you know natural menopause, 48 to 55, uh, then we really say that the relatives can start doing mammograms at age 40. Mm-hmm. So that is the general rule. Now, if there are other, so if the relative was younger, so let's say that the relative was 40 when they were diagnosed, mm. then we really do recommend earlier screenings. Now, that being said, we really don't want women to start having mammograms too young because the problem with that is that women, women's breasts are so dense that mammograms really don't show us anything in young, dense breasts. So they're kind of useless. So younger than 35, we tend to start to support breast screenings with MRIs. Mm -hmm. So an MRI, and and an MRI has to be with and without contrasts. So in order to be able to see enough to be able to evaluate uh, breast cancer, um, developing in the breast, we really do need to be able to um, evaluate that with and without the contrast, because that's going to show vascularity in the breast tissue. Mm-hmm. And we can start MRIs quite young. We can, you know, honestly, I've had women in their early 20s start having MRIs. And the way that we evaluate for that is, again, not only the age of the uh, relative that had breast cancer, but we also assess how many relatives have had breast cancer. We assess if they're, um, how old the woman was when she started periods, how old she was when she had her first term pregnancy, and how old she was if she's gone through menopause when she went through menopause. Those numbers are important because we know that the more cycles that a woman goes through, the higher her risk of breast cancer. So if a woman starts her periods at at the age of nine, which unfortunately we're seeing girls having periods younger and younger and younger, and honestly, that's because of the hormones in our foods, Mm -hmm. um, which is another topic that that we can tackle. but you know, we see women, we see girls that have uh, that start their periods younger, so say age nine, and then they have their periods all the way until they're fifty-five, and they never take a break for a pregnancy. Those women are at a higher risk of having breast cancer than a woman who started her periods, say, at age fourteen, had her had her first pregnancy at twenty-one, had another pregnancy at twenty-five and then went through menopause at 50. Mm. So you can identify that you have fewer cycles then, so fewer cycles for the breasts to change through. Mm. Um, The other things that we look at are if the woman has had any biopsies that showed abnormal cells. So we know that if a woman has had a biopsy with with abnormal cells, then we really do need to be more careful and more cognizant of her screening. And then finally, if she has Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, we know that women who have had Ashka- or who have Ashkenazi Jewish heritage have an increased risk of having certain genetic mutations. So those are the breast risks specifically. Hmm. Now, 
as we do more and more genetic testing, we've realized that there are certain other cancers that seem to be somehow linked to breast cancer risk. So if you have a relative with pancreatic cancer, if you have a relative with a melanoma, or if you yourself have had pancreatic cancer or a melanoma, and ovarian cancer. So those are the three main cancers that we also always kind of get a little alert about when we hear that a woman wants to discuss her breast cancer risk, because we know that especially ovarian cancer, if, if there's a relative that has had ovarian cancer or if the woman herself has had ovarian cancer, then there's an increased risk of a genetic mutation that may cause also breast cancer to develop. So more and more, we're also doing genetic testing. So, you know, it's, it's yes, we do uh, screening mammograms. We talk about, you know, breast exams. Um, in 2010, there was this big hubbub here in the United States because uh, the United States uh, task force put out a statement that women no longer need to do their own breast exams, which is just mind blowing to me. <laughs> I can tell you that I have quite a few patients that come in having found their own breast cancer because they check their breasts. Yeah. So, you know, I think that breast awareness is incredibly important, checking your own breasts, whether that's, you know, in the shower or, uh, you know, before you go to bed or when you're putting on your lotion. But at some point, you really should be checking your breasts. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and then again, clinical breast exams having your screening mammograms, MRIs if needed. Um, ultrasound is an interesting imaging technique. I use ultrasound in my office like it's my stethoscope. The great majority of women in my office get an ultrasound at some point. And in fact, I do it to the point where I don't even charge for an ultrasound because I think it's silly to charge for an ultrasound. It's just part of my pricing structure. Mm. So when I see a woman, if I feel she needs an ultrasound, I do an ultrasound. So an ultrasound is incredibly valuable for targeted areas of the breast. So if there's a lump or if there's a finding on mammography that needs to be better evaluated, an ultrasound is a great adjunct to actually mm -hmm. take a look at that specific area. Mm -hmm. I am not a big fan of what are called whole breast ultrasounds. So when a woman goes in and gets, so there, there are two different kinds. So a handheld ultrasound, unfortunately, a lot of imaging centers will call an, an whole breast ultrasound where they scan at 12 o'clock. You know, and so we look at the breast like the face of a clock, right? So at the top is 12 o'clock, at the bottom is six o'clock. And then depending on which breast you're looking at, three and nine o'clock are at the inside and outside. And so at a lot of imaging centers, they'll call a whole breast ultrasound where they scan at 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, and they call it a day. And unfortunately, that's far from enough. So if, you know, if we're actually doing an ultrasound for diagnostic purposes, I think that it's important to not go on a fishing expedition and not just, you know, do this kind of haphazard wherever the, the scanner lands is where we're going to scan, I think it's important to check the area of concern. Mm -hmm. There is uh, the automated breast ultrasound, which lately has come about, and it's, it's offered in several larger centers. It's not as well 
Um, it's, it's not well reimbursed. It's an expensive uh, modality. But the nice thing about it is it truly is a machine automated um, breast ultrasound. So you don't have mm. the, you know, the problem with human error yeah. and the entire breast at that point gets scanned. So that's an, that's an interesting thing that's becoming more and more popular. But again, right now it's pretty price prohibitive. So not as well um, used. And then the last thing, again, as I mentioned, is genetic testing and appropriate people. So um, that was a mouthful. <laughs> oh, that is so fascinating. I used to actually be the CEO of the Australasian Society of Ultrasound Medicine. So that conversation about ultrasound is fascinating to me. And the concept that you're now, yeah, that's right, um, sort of artificially scanning the the, the breast for that, that reason, that's absolutely blown my mind. So amazing. I love hearing uh, people who are currently uh, pioneering new spaces. I'd love to finish then our conversation of going a bit more personal with you and, and asking you, well, why did you become a breast surgeon? Why did you choose you choose the breast to be your, your specialty area amongst all the other areas of medicine? Yeah, so I started out as a general surgery resident. Um, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon since I was tiny. I never wanted to do anything else. Um, so that was an easy track. And while I was in my surgical residency, initially I thought that I would be a trauma surgeon. Um, I really love the high of being in charge of a room, of telling, you know, when you have a patient in extremis and you bring them back from the brink. It's an incredible feeling and, you know, that both the highs and lows are incredibly adrenaline pumping and a lot of times very attractive, especially for young surgeons. So that was my goal. And then, um, and, and so in, in my program, we didn't do breast surgery until later on in the program. And so eventually I assisted on my first um, lumpectomy. So a partial mastectomy or a lumpectomy is where you take out a portion of the breast surrounding a breast cancer, including the breast cancer. Um, and the procedure was being done by my program director. I was assisting. And the woman who had the breast cancer was the wife of his closest, dearest friend. And my thought was that this should be incredible. I'm so excited to do this procedure and to be a part of it. And when we finished the procedure, it was more of a butcher job. And it was just the most horrible outcome. The woman was severely disfigured. And when I said to the male surgeon, unfortunately, he was a man, um, I said to him, can't we do better? is this really all that we can do? His answer was, she should be happy. I got rid of her cancer. Yeah. And so I'm going to get emotional because I always yeah. do when I tell the yeah. story because it's, it's, it was so incredibly humbling to hear him say that. Mm. And at that moment, I knew exactly what I needed to do. So yeah. I, at first I thought that I would be a plastic surgeon and fix these traumatic, um, you know, horrible things that general surgeons did their, to their patients. And so my first thought was that I would uh, do plastic surgery, but my general surgery program was quite small and not well known. And plastic surgery is very competitive. 
So I wanted to give myself a little push. And so I initially did a hand and reconstructive fellowship. So I actually did extra training in hand surgery and microscopic surgery. And at the end of that fellowship, I decided that I just wanted to start working. It was uh, too difficult to be a resident. It was um, a little bit um, demeaning in a lot of ways. And I just wanted to start working. So I started working as a hand surgeon for a large multi-specialty group in New York and was incredibly um, blessed in that I had a lot of patients. I had fantastic outcomes. I was really um, happy with what I was doing, but I wasn't fulfilled. Hmm. And I knew that what I really wanted to do was to do breast surgery. And so after doing hand surgery for about three and a half years, I decided to go back and do another fellowship. Mm -hmm. And that was the Oncoplastic Breast Surgery Fellowship. Um, so I've been, I've dedicated my practice to breast care since 2009. Um, and I'm so, so happy that I did that. It's just been an amazing um, journey for myself. And I love to be able to help my patients on their journeys. I can hear hear that so um, so powerfully, and I love that that explanation of what or how it, how your why drives you. Those listening yeah. into uh, Dr. Honey's um, sharing there, you can see that yet you know it doesn't mean that you're not good at other things. You know you're very good, very competent. Uh, it's not about that. It's actually somewhere deep down in in all of us, I believe, is that you know that desire to because of a circuit circumstance, a situation that occurred that actually says I can do better. You know, right. or I'm not going to judge someone else, but I can be part of you know a better future. And I hear that so strongly from our conversation today. And and what a what a bold move it is to when you've done something already to actually go back and do what you truly want. You know, you've really got to back yourself it's time it's energy uh it's it's sometimes a sideward step sometimes even a backward step for a little while until you then sort of rise above that but i so admire you and and all of us when we we really just lean into that sort of you know desire to to be the best of who we were born to be and and what stimulates us and motivates us because who who benefits one you're happier and healthier but your patients are just so so blessed to have you as their doctor um i am 100 percent sure about that so those of you listening in today, you can reach out to Dr. Hania Badarsky uh, via her website, which is serenitysurgery.com. Uh, so if you, I'm assuming they can just go, go to that website, find out yeah. more about you. Can they contact you directly if they've got a question? How does that work? Absolutely. So we have several ways in the website that patients can contact me. There's actually a section specifically for patients, and there's quite a bit of information in that section, uh, both about me and about the practice. I also do televisits, um, so you don't have to necessarily come to Myrtle Beach. That's where I am. I'm right by the beach um, in the United States, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You don't have to come to the beach, although I can tell you the beach is wonderful. Um, <laughs> but you know, I do do televisits, so if anyone is interested in getting a second opinion or if they would just like some more of an explanation of what's going on, um, I am very, very happy to help women on their journey in any way that I can. 
Oh, thank you so much for those listening in. If you've had an experience that you've had some surgery that you just uh, have, have always regretted, you might not be happy with the results and you think I've just got to, got to live with that, I encourage you to reach out. If you're actually worried about breast cancer and you've put things out of your mind, you know, sometimes you can be so overwhelmed by something you haven't even tested, you don't want to know. You know, it can be that head in the sand approach and there's no judgment with anything. You know, it, it just means that now, today, you can actually make that decision to just reach out and have a conversation doesn't mean that you're going to be spending lots of money getting lots of tests it just means that we can um, become more aware and not just aware by this kind of conversation but actually just to, to do one action and I think the first action is obviously to become you know more familiar more more um, more engaged with your own health and wellness and, and a step there is um, yeah just reaching out and finding out some more information thank you so much for being on my program today our conversation has just been so interesting I've certainly learned a lot I know those listening around the world um, women will be like wow I'm going to actually re-listen to a few of those facts there was so much information in there <laughs> I know it just comes out off the top of your tongue but it's like wow I'm going to definitely revisit some of those definitely for all of us ladies definitely check your breasts every month make sure that you know what schedule of mammogram testing you should be having and other other requirements as recommended by your doctor and just value it comes down to valuing yourself yes we value all the other things that we do but we need to you know realize that you know what if something something unfortunate happened to us and we weren't proactive then everybody suffers you know there's no positive outcome from that and at the end of the Day, we want to be as happy and as healthy as we can all be so um, I think so much wisdom in our conversation today and I thank you so so much for um, explaining things so um, easily you know sometimes we get bogged down with medical jargon and I must admit when I sort of looked at your introduction I'm going okay what's some of those things and you've just made it sound so simple so thank you <laughs> Aww, Annie thank you so much for having me it's been great fun thank you